Welcome back to Fishhawk. Today, I'm going to be speaking with an old friend of mine, Emily Burton. She's currently a student of Washington State University in Pullman, Washington, working on her PhD. She's studying the populations and effects of black leg ticks. While her focus is on Lyme disease, also known as Lyme's disease in the Northeast of the United States, she also agreed to speak with me about the effects of climate change on these ticks. Well, thank you, Emily, for being here today and talking to me about ticks. Oh, everyone's course. favorite, everyone's favorite topic. I mean, at least it's my favorite topic. <laughs> <laughs> Is it really your favorite topic? I mean, I'm definitely more interested in them than the normal person. Like, were you interested in them before or after you started researching them? Um, ticks specifically after I started researching them, but um diseases and that kind of stuff in general I've always been pretty interested in. Fair. What environment are you comfortable and familiar with? Tell me a little <laughs> bit more about what you do. Okay so I study um, Ixodes scapularis which are the black leg ticks in the northeast of okay. the U.S. They're also found in the Great Lakes region. Um, some people know them as deer ticks. Turns out black leg ticks used to be commonly called deer ticks by scientists, which is how it became popularized in the first place. But what do black leg ticks actually do? Well, so they need to eat. That's like, a tick is born, and what it needs is it needs a blood meal, which is why they're little vampires. Gross. Um, and ticks have, the ones I study, have three life stages. They're a larvae when they emerge from their egg, they then, after they emerge, they get one blood meal, they drop off their host, they molt into a nymph, and then blood meal, drop off the host, molt into an adult. When they're an adult, they get a blood meal and find a mate on that host, drop off, and then either lay eggs or if they're a male, they just die. So ticks just feed for five times in their lifespan? They feed three times in their lifespan. And that's over the course of like two years in some places, but it can be like one and a half to three years. Yeah, so really their their goals, quotes in life are to feed at each life stage and find a mate in the final life stage so they can reproduce. And so their main behaviors are relating to finding a host and to prevent themselves from dying while they're off the host. And their movement pattern and how they move in the environment is known as questing. Because ticks don't really move horizontally on the environment. To them, like, a blade of grass is, like, Mount Everest to try to, like, get over <laughs> for the most part. Um, so they don't move very far horizontally, but they move up and down vertically on vegetation. So when they're above the leaf litter ground level, they're losing water. And so they're at risk of desiccation, but that's where they're most likely to find a host. And so they'll hmm. go onto the, like, emergent vegetation, and they'll stick out their front arms, and they'll kind of wave them around because their um, sensory organs are in their armpits. And so <laughs> that's how they'll like sense the host cues and they'll wave them around and then when they need more water in their bodies they'll go back down to the leaf litter where it's more humid and they'll absorb water and so there's a balance of wanting to maximize the time that they can find a host and hopefully a good host and making sure that they don't dry out in the process. Hmm. That's so interesting. So they're kind of reaching out for a hug as someone comes by. <laughs> reaching out for a hug or a kiss or a bite. 
How romantic. How romantic. <laughs> so what's the best way of finding these little bloodsuckers? They're so small. Yeah, they really strain the eyes when you're looking at them. <laughs> so the way that I collect ticks in the environment is I go dragging, which is exactly kind of how it sounds. I have a piece of white, um, kind of like corduroy-ish cloth. It's a meter square or a yard square, whatever people want to do. And it really depends on how precise you want to be about measuring, like, abundance in the wild but usually I'm just collecting a bunch of them and so you take that drag cloth and you pull it behind you and like at random intervals or very specific intervals you just flip the cloth over and you check it for any ticks and then I put them in little vials or if you don't need them I guess you just put them on the ground I guess depending on what you're trying to do um and so it's it's kind of a tedious process if you're like measuring the abundance of ticks in an area, you are pretty precise with that and you make sure that you use like straight lines and a grid pattern and that you right. pull up the cloth and check it every 10 seconds or 10 paces kind of stuff. Um, people also use CO2 traps, which is when you huh. just like let a bunch of dry ice sublimate and the CO2 attracts ticks to an area. I or it'll cause them to be more active in an area, and so you can kind of then sweep along and grab them that way. They sense vibration, body heat, um, odor profiles, CO2. Can't help but start comparing ticks to the velociraptors in Jurassic Park, though they're arguably not quite as fast. How can you protect yourself from ticks? Stop breathing? (laughs) No, the best way to not get a tick bite is to just not have exposed skin at the level where ticks exist. So don't walk around barefoot. If you wear long socks, tuck your pants into your socks. Nobody yeah. listens to this, but <laughs> you look like a loser <laughs> when you're hiking in the woods like that. But, <laughs> but it's effective. <laughs> it's very effective. Or use bug spray. Like yeah. there's a lot so of- So does bug spray work There's um, insect repellents that work for ticks too. Just like if you read the back of the bottle, you'll see. So how long does it take after a tick has gotten onto your body for them to latch on and for the disease to be a concern? So a tick will stay on you for like a couple days up to a week, depending on the life stage. Larval ticks, you generally don't have to worry about if they bit you if you're going to get Lyme disease because they're not born with the disease, so they haven't acquired one yet. Nymphs, on the other hand, they're the second life stage, The one of the juvenile sub-adult life stages they'll stay on you for three days or so and in that process they're just (laughs) it's really gross but they (laughs) it's not just a one-way stream of continuously sucking blood so when a tick bites you they inject a lot of saliva proteins into your skin to prevent your body from having any sort of inflammatory response which is why you don't get like itchy tick bites necessarily Mm -hmm. like a mosquito bite would so they suppress your immune system locally so you don't get itchy and you don't notice them and it also helps them glue and stick in place like ticks are really hard to pull off because they have this like glue kind of in there and so when they're sucking in blood they're also processing it in their body and like throwing up some of it back into you Mm. because they want just like the proteins and that kind of stuff from the blood they don't necessarily need all the water content and so they're just becoming really concentrated in terms of their blood meal and that 
backsplashing or throwing up like process is what will get the bacteria that was originally in the tick or whatever other disease they're carrying back into your bloodstream. So the tick has to feed for like at least 24 hours or so to give you Lyme disease because of where the bacteria is located within the tick and how long it takes to regurgitate it. I know that you've gotten Lyme's disease before, which you sounded very excited about. <laughs> I was <when> so excited. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it's only like a scientist thing where like you, well, obviously because I don't study like a deadly like disease system, I'm like really cool with it. <laughs> yeah, so I got Lyme disease this past summer and I was kind of excited because I got the bullseye's rash and I was like, oh my God, a textbook case. <laughs> and I wasn't like, it's it's not a, like you never want to get a disease. Lyme disease is not fun. And there are plenty of people that have a really hard time with it. I was excited because I study it. I know what it is. I'm a lot less afraid of it. And I knew immediately when I saw that I had a rash growing and I was starting to feel like tired and achy. I knew immediately it was Lyme disease because I was working closely with ticks. The area I lived in was very tick heavy. Um, so I knew immediately to go to urgent care and the urgent care was like, your copay's $200. And I was like, screw that. And I just called my doctor <laughs> and I told them I have Lyme disease. It's a really weird disease medically, and I'm glad I don't study the medical side of it. She went on to tell me that the symptoms of Lyme disease include aches, pains, and brain fog, which are the same symptoms as a lot of different illnesses, as well as just getting a cold or the flu. It can make it incredibly difficult to diagnose without the infamous bullseye rash. While certain cases, like hers, can be easily cleared up, other individuals might be fully treated and still deal with the effects of Lyme for the rest of their life. Why does that happen? Nobody knows. <laughs> like, that's the thing. Like, the, yeah. the like old-timey, like, theory that I hear from Mainers is that it's, like, it hides in your bones or something like that. <laughs> like, the, like, the Lyme's hides in your bones. Yeah. Um, and so I've heard things like maybe Lyme can trigger an autoimmune disease that was pre-existing or underlying. And so you get Lyme and then afterwards you get similar symptoms and it's not the Lyme, it's an autoimmune disease because a lot of autoimmune diseases can have the same symptoms. Or I've heard that Lyme can like form these round bodies. So the bacteria is normally corkscrew. It's called like a spirochete. It's usually a spiral, but it can form these round bodies that are just like more tightly compacted, I guess, that the antibiotics can't get to. And so once you finish your course, those little round bodies can become an active infection again, and then you're still sick. And sometimes maybe the infection causes permanent damage in your body, and so you have permanent nerve damage or mm. inflamed joints or something like that after your infection. So you still have symptoms. So on the medical side, Lyme is an absolute mess. <laughs> yeah. It's really confusing. I'm not jealous of the scientists, but it's also really interesting. Yeah. Like it stinks for the people that have it, but in terms of just like a like a mystery to solve. Right. It's interesting. That is really interesting. Lyme is obviously a serious concern for people, but how do ticks interact with the environment they live in of people yeah. aside? Yeah, so I don't know if the diseases ticks carry make any other animal sick. At least the the ticks I'm studying, the black body ticks, if they make other animals sick, um, they do parasitize those animals because ticks are ectoparasites. They feed on the outside and they require that blood meal. Um, and they feed on just about anything 
or they try to feed upon just about anything they encounter. In the Northeast, that's primarily small mammals and birds and Mm -hmm. up to medium-sized and larger mammals as they um, mold into their older life stages. In the Southeast, they feed upon reptiles. So they Mm. they try just about anything. They're like (laughs) ultra-generalist species. They're not really specialized to any one species necessarily. Um, There are other tick species where the ticks themselves really harm the animals. And I think specifically of the winter ticks, I think they are, which are the ones that um, they're known right now because they're basically killing moose by just moose will stumble upon like these larval bombs is what they're called because when an egg mass that a female lays hatches all the larvae are basically in the same place so if you stumble upon that that's 2,000 larvae yeah because an adult female can lay like 2,000 eggs Um, and so the moose will get covered in ticks and then the ticks will stay on the moose and basically kind of bleed the moose out and they'll it's really sad yeah so like those kinds of ticks that can really harm animals and i'm trying to think of maybe ticks are good for some animals i'm not sure well that uh, like there could be downstream <laughs> consequences trophic yeah. cascades but i really don't think they pro- play like any major role in feeding animals or like keeping populations down in one sense i think they're just they're so, there and they encounter other animals are you saying that without ticks the world would be just fine kind of think it would be <laughs> can i say it'll all be fine like not with 100 percent confidence and i think we have this idea that like nature is being held together by like these little threads and if you pull one thing out like everything's going to crumble to the dust and like it's not plenty of species are dying all the time out like they're going extinct all the time right. species that we haven't even discovered in our lifetime have gone extinct in our lifetime and things haven't like fallen completely to dust <laughs> Yet. Yeah. <laughs> There's a few species that could go and extinct that would make things maybe better or worse. Right. Um, but yeah, I think at least if, like, I, again, I only want to speak for the black leg ticks, but I think if they went away, we, we'd be just fine. <laughs> so it's okay that I'm not rooting for them. Yeah, you don't need to root for everything. So how are things changing as our climate is changing? Yeah. So climate change has really like important impacts on disease in general even ones that maybe aren't necessarily like emerging from the natural environment just globalization um and human travel can impact how fast diseases spread before we can get control of them but in terms of vector-borne diseases which are the diseases that ticks spread and mosquitoes spread and other um creatures like a vector is just an animal. I see. In my mind, an animal that spreads a disease between animals. So mosquito-borne diseases, tick-borne diseases. Um, those are emerging because and spreading because changes in climate allowed those vector species to expand their ranges. Hmm. And so when Zika was a problem um, a few years back, I remember one of the concerns was that the mosquito that can vector Zika was moving northwards into the U.S. And so maybe like 30 years ago, it wouldn't have been a problem for people in the U.S. But now, since that mosquito species can expand its range into the southern U.S., that's a problem. With Lyme disease, we're seeing um, 
if you go on like the CDC website, you can look at um, maps of cases in different locations across the U.S. Mm-hmm. through time, and you'll see that they're spreading um, from like southern New England, north, south, like east, west. They're just spreading a number, and they're spreading a number around the Great Lakes, and there's like few cases popping up on the west coast too. That's partially because ticks are able to expand their range and one of the things or reasons besides just temperature changes is the way we manage our forests and habitats. Um, The animals that support tick feeding really well, so mice are really good at supporting tick feeding because they can feed a lot of ticks and ticks do really well when they feed on mice. Mm -hmm. And deer support ticks because that's a popular place for ticks to breed. So when adult ticks get on a deer, they can find a mate and then their population's numbers will increase. And deer are also important because they can spread ticks around. Um, Both mice and deer do really well in fragmented habitats. And so when we have just like patches of forest instead of one really big dense forest, you kind of get rid of those other animals that would maybe take ticks away from these really good hosts. And instead you just get the best hosts for ticks that support tick feeding and tick breeding and then get just a lot and a lot of ticks. I see. And those edge forest areas are also common for people to go into. Those are just like your little local parks and like your backyards that like butt up against the woods and stuff. And so people are going to hang out there and not be as concerned because it's not like the deep woods. (laughs) (laughs) Right. They'll encounter ticks there too. And so temperature is a big thing. Climate change is really huge and then how we manage our landscapes is also really big are there any species that benefit from ticks i haven't seen anything like explicitly stated in terms of species that benefit from ticks even just like what who are ticks predators i mean lots of things eat ticks they're they're just like tiny little arthropods birds probably eat them small mammals eat them even so like the animals that ticks will feed from those animals will groom ticks off themselves and eat the Mm -hmm. ticks and so they're just like eating each other i guess um it's a snack yeah there's i don't think there's any creature that i know of that explicitly and exclusively feeds upon ticks so if ticks were to disappear they wouldn't have a food source People talk about having chickens and how chickens will like eat the ticks in their backyard, but I don't think that's necessarily killing tick populations. I think it's yeah. just that chickens peck at the ground and eat little bugs and grubs. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there are other things out there too. Right, yeah. So I think if you get rid of ticks, there's plenty of other arthropods that animals pecking at the ground can eat. <laughs> yeah. I think the coolest thing about my study system is that not every host species that a tick feeds upon is equal. Hmm. And so there are hosts that are really good at feeding a lot of ticks. So they don't groom ticks off, they don't really respond to ticks, they just kind of let them sit there and feed completely. And they're also really good at acquiring the pathogens that ticks transmit and transmitting those pathogens to ticks. So a tick isn't born with a disease, it can only pick it up from an animal. So the fact that different host species 
have differences in their ability to give pathogens to ticks affects our disease risk. And so in the Lyme disease system in the Northeast, the white-footed mouse is the most competent reservoir in the system. And so the most competent reservoir means that it's the animal that is best at harboring the pathogen upon acquiring it and transmitting it to new ticks. There is this theory that came out of the Lyme disease system in the broader field of ecology called the dilution effect, which is where if you have more species in a community, more host species in a community, you dilute the effects of the most competent reservoir and reduce overall disease risk. Hmm. So that assumes that in a low diversity community, the most competent host dominates the community, which is the case for Lyme disease. In really low diversity areas in the Northeast, animals like white-footed mice and chipmunks, which are also really good for ticks, tend to do really well because they're really good at living in those patchy habitats. Um, Whereas animals like opossums and raccoons and skunks, they don't do as well because they need more space, they need more resources. Mm. And so when you allow a really diverse community to exist, you kind of give ticks the opportunity to feed on these alternative, less competent hosts. And it reduces the number of ticks in the environment that have disease. So if a tick doesn't carry a disease, it's really not a threat to anybody. It's gross and it's annoying, but getting a tick bite isn't going to harm you necessarily unless the tick happens to have a disease. Right. And so it's kind of this dilution effect idea kind of gives credence to the idea that diversity actually is really good for us and that we should care about biodiversity <laughs> because it directly affects our health. Right, yeah. To break it down even more, Having a lot of different animal species that ticks can feed on in an area allows the same population of ticks to feed on animals that aren't carriers of diseases like Lyme. Therefore, the more wooded and diverse a natural habitat is, the more animals can live there and the less Lyme diseases and other tick-borne diseases are a concern. More trees equals more animals equals a safer nature adventure for people. Well, thank you so much for, for meeting with me today and talking to me about, about ticks. And um, as much as I hate them, I, I think they're really fascinating. And Yeah, and it's good to just know about the things that could hurt you. Yeah, good, good common knowledge. Good to have. to have some safety ideas. Good to know about your environment and how it's changing and how that affects you.